Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A college student can't remember if she's eaten breakfast. and By dinner, she's strapped to a hospital bed, convinced she's battling zombies. A man planning to propose marriage instead becomes violently enraged, gripped by body spasms so severe he nearly bites off his own tongue. One after another, poor farmers in South Carolina drop dead from a mysterious epidemic of dementia. These are some of the true stories told by neurologist Sarah Manning-Peskin in her book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. She says our brains are the most complex machines known to humankind, but they have an Achilles heel. The very molecules that allow us to exist can also sabotage our minds. In the book, she also tells us about the sometimes outlandish, often criticized, forever devoted scientists who work to solve these mysteries and find cures. Sarah Manny Peskin is Assistant Professor of Clinical Neurology at University of Pennsylvania. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Boston Globe Magazine, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. She lives in Philadelphia. Sarah Manny Peskin, uh, thank you so much. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. A fascinating book. Uh, I want to start with your decision as a resident, a neurology resident. You're trying to decide what to specialize in, and you're Mentor gives you some some uh, great advice. Mentor says, try to picture who you want to be sitting on the examination table when you open the door to the clinic room. So who did you want to be sitting uh, there when you opened the door to the clinic room? So I, what I realized when I got that advice was that I wanted to see people who had had a change in personality um, and uh, you sort of think of a couple who drifts apart and they show up at a couple's therapy and they say, you know, one says to the other, you're not the person that I married. And that instant is so common. But what's unusual in the field that I study is that in many of these cases, there's actually a molecular cause. So it's not just that people drift away and people change over time. There are actually these known medical molecular causes for someone to become essentially a different person. And that was really what fascinated me the most. And I was interested both of the the medical aspect of it and also the the social ramifications. Uh, we really we really in our clinic, uh, we don't really treat individuals. It's very much sort of treating a family, treating a couple, um, treating you know parents and children. And um, for me, I find that uh, meaningful. Uh, so you say you see your role as it's it fascinating to connect a patient's narrative to the molecules causing the problem, kind of a, a really holistic approach. Yeah, I don't think I actually realized until I was halfway through the book that what I was writing about was really just the, the same process that we do in the clinic every day. You can imagine, you know, you show up at your doctor and you describe all your symptoms. What we do yeah, when I, when patients come in and talk about what they're experiencing, we're going through this calculation of um, hearing what's going on for them in the real world, of learning about what is it like to be them navigating, you know, driving and cooking and talking but what I'm trying to connect it to is what do I think is going on in their brain at a molecular level? So if I were to take a piece of their brain and look at it under a microscope, what do I think I would find? Even though, I, you know, in 99% of the cases, I never end up doing that. We don't tell people to have, you know, a biopsy. But a lot of our work is trying to figure out if I were to do that, what do I think I would see? So uh, you went into this work, you know, that, um, diseases that cause change in personality, um, you call this, you say you're at once horrified and fascinated. Uh, you say it became a dementia doctor. I just want to read this a couple sentences. Became a dementia doctor, at once horrified and fascinated by the way Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia can change a person's personality. And today I spend most uh, days watching my patients slowly disappear as their husbands, wives, children, and sometimes patients look on in anguish. 
that uh, you go on to say, I am in many ways a guide on the path to nothingness. That, that's that's got to take a toll on the doctor as well. There is, there is sort of a, a heaviness in the work we do, but at the same time, I have to say, you know, a lot of people don't go into this work because they say, you know, it must be terribly depressing. Um, and I think people say the same things about, you know, treating kids with cancer or things like that. But actually, there is so much um, relief and happiness and and sort of satisfaction in the work we do, um, at least in my experience of it. A lot of the people that we see have been, you know, roaming around the world for oftentimes years with no diagnosis and no idea what's going on. And especially if people have more rare causes for their symptoms, being able to tell someone, you know, hey, you're not alone. We see this. We we know what's happening. We can tell you what symptoms will come up in the future. We can tell you what to watch for. Here's how to, you know, help your mood symptoms. Here's how to help agitation. Um, it's extraordinarily rewarding. Um, and even though for most of the things that we, we see, we don't have a cure, we often have ways to help the symptoms, and we have ways to support families as they go through this. Um, so it actually is a very fulfilling work, um, but there is a, a heaviness in terms of um, not having a way to stop everything in their tracks. You seem to be quite hopeful. You you compare uh, you know studies on diseases that cause dementia with cancer, and you say you know there's, there's been a lot of progress for the past few decades in cancer. You, you feel like we're we're going to make the same similar progress uh, with with dementia and other diseases. Yeah, I mean, cancer has been revolutionized because now if you show up to your doctor's office with cancer, in many cases, what they'll do is, you know, take a piece of the cancer or use some sort of test to figure out what's going on at a microscopic level, a molecular level in that cancer. And then they pull off a medication that specifically targets your type of cancer with your type of molecules. And that's where we're trying to get to with with dementia and with cognitive symptoms. Um, so in, in an ideal world, if someone shows up to the doctor's office, they say, you know, I'm forgetting my keys and I can't remember my grandchildren's ages. And we say, okay, we're going to take these three pictures of your brain. We're going to figure out what molecules are causing your problem. And then we have this treatment that specifically targets your disease. It's this sort of personalized medicine problem. And it's worked so well in cancer. And we have more and more tools to do that with dementia. And even though we haven't gotten to the holy grail. We haven't cured Alzheimer's disease, but we're just getting closer and, and closer. Uh, you have a glossary at the back of the book, which was helpful. I wonder if you could we could maybe start there. So um, the title is A Molecule Away from Madness. Uh, d- define for us, remind us what a molecule is. Yeah, so the place to start is, you know, what's an, an atom? So you've all heard of atoms, things like um, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen. A molecule is just more than one atom stuck together. An easy way to think about it is, if you think of an atom as a Lego block, a molecule is anything that's constructed of more than one Lego block. So there's an infinite number that you could build. Um, and uh, our, our brains are made of you know, tons and tons of molecules. And uh, so that's sort of the, the easiest way to think about it. Uh, so you, you talk about uh, mutants, rebels, invaders, and evaders. I wonder if you could define each of those briefly, and then we get into some of these uh, stories and some of the science. Yeah, so I divided the book into four different types of molecules. Um, so I start off with some of the biggest molecules in the body. So with mutants, uh, but that was to these are stories about DNA. Um, so DNA is is just enormous compared to you know something small like water. 
Um, and it turns out that if we have, if you think of DNA as your you know, three-dimensional computer code, there are places where if you have a small glitch or small mutation, you actually can sort of override the whole machine. So people can have complete overhauls of their personality due to just a, a small change in their DNA. And uh, sort of a, a bit of a sort of um, a, a sort of guerrilla warfare type um, type model. Um, so that was the the mutants. These are stories of people who have been overrun by uh, DNA mutations. And then the second chapter, the second section uh, is about rebels, and these are proteins that are supposed to help us and instead turn on us. And if you think about DNA again as this sort of three dimensional computer code. It really contains the instructions for being a human, but proteins are the molecules that really carry out the work of being a human. And uh, the stories that I wrote about in this rebel section are about proteins that take aim at our brains. The invaders are small molecules. So DNA and proteins are gigantic compared to these group of molecules that are, the, the technical term is small molecules. And uh, sometimes they are present when they shouldn't be, and they invade the brain, and that causes us symptoms. A great example of that is medications uh, or, or toxins. And uh, these are things that can get into our brains, and they can wreak havoc uh, because they're there and they're not supposed to be. And then the last uh, section is sort of the opposite. These are evaders. So these are small molecules where we really need them, and they're supposed to be in the brain, and we suffer problems when they're not there. So they're sort of conspicuously absent, and that's what causes the problem. I'd like to, uh, with stories, I'd like to start a little bit out of um, order um, and have you tell me about, I think this is under the section Rebel uh, Proteins. Um, so Lauren Kane, not her real name, I think, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, so tell me, that. Be, be, I want to start here because th- this illustrates how fast a change can happen. Yeah, the, the changes in protein can just cause these remarkable, almost feels like it happens in a moment, in a few hours. And so Laurentine was a, a, was a young woman who really sort of overcame adversity growing up. Her mom was this incredible force and really made sure that she got a good education. She ends up excelling and going to this very elite college, did beautifully there, went home after graduating and started to put together an application because she wanted to apply to, to graduate school. She wanted to be a writer. And uh, she woke, she actually, uh, during that summer, she started watching The Walking Dead. And she would watch sort of episode after episode, as everyone does. And she woke up one morning, came downstairs and, and talked to her mom, had breakfast with her, went back, up, went to bed, woke up again and said, you know, what's for breakfast? And her mom thought it was a little bit strange. And uh, Lauren went back to sleep and then woke up again, again, saying, you know, what's for breakfast? And her mom is sort of starting to get a little bit suspicious. By the, the afternoon, she, Lauren has a fever. She's sort of stumbling as she's walking. And her mom brings her to the emergency room. And Lauren says, you know, Mom, do you think this could be a, a virus in my head? But she's also sort of confused. Lauren starts to not realize why she's there. She thinks that her mom is the one who's sick. She doesn't realize that, you know, she's the one on the gurney. And a physician comes in and starts asking her questions. And during the process of questioning, Lauren essentially becomes acutely psychotic. She throws her mom onto the floor. She throws a nurse onto the floor. A a train of security guards actually comes in. They have to drape themselves on top of her. She ends up getting restrained. And uh, she starts calling people in the room by names of characters from The Walking Dead. 
And one of the security guards actually puts it together that Lauren thinks she's living in The Walking Dead. And she ends up getting admitted to the hospital. Nobody can really figure out what's going on. And her mom actually finds an article about a condition that's caused by abnormal proteins that often causes young women to become acutely psychotic. And her mom brings it up to the team. The team doesn't really consider it very much, but they can't figure out what else is going on. Eventually, they agree to, to send Lauren to a different hospital where they test for this disease and find it's actually, this is the case. Her mom was right. Her mom actually correctly you know, diagnosed it. And the disease that Lauren had um, actually is a, it's an immune-related disease. So if you think about uh, whenever you have an infection, your body creates antibodies. And these are these small molecules that actually attack the infection. What happened in Lauren's case, what they figured out, is that she actually had a, a tumor on her ovaries. And the tumor wasn't causing, causing her any problems, actually. The, the tumor itself was not you know, particularly large or problematic. Um, but her body, in trying to attack the tumor, actually created antibodies to the tumor, which normally would be great, uh, except for the tumor that she had actually looked a little bit like brain cells. And so her body ended up creating lots and lots of antibodies that uh, attacked a, a, uh, something called a, a receptor um, that, uh, that was in, in her brain. And so it actually caused her brain to, to malfunction. And the disease actually works a lot like PCP. And so it almost was as if she was on essentially like a chronic drip of PCP. That's what her body did to her. And when they figured out what was going on, they actually were able to treat her, um, and she improved actually fairly quickly. Yeah, and now is you know back and uh, and living her her life. So it's pretty remarkable. And twenty years ago, no one knew what this disease was, and now you know people can return to being normal. Twenty years ago, she would have been admitted to a psych ward; she never would have gotten out. Um, so it's a pretty remarkable piece of progress. Yeah, yeah, that is progress. Very hopeful, right? That that she could be returned to, uh, you know, to her regular life. In the middle of this, and and you, you know, you're always on the alert to how this is affecting not only the patient but their families. You know, it's never just the patient, right? It's it's, it's the families and uh, everybody connected to to the person. Um, I love this line. You you talk about uh, Lauren's mother. She. The mother kept watch over her daughter, hoping one of the always answerless doctors would burst into the room and announce the reason for Lauren's illness. That's a that's a nice insight into in, into the mother. You know that hope. Yeah, she was really the sort of this sort of hero of the tale in finding the diagnosis. And actually, um, our our younger son was actually in the um, in the NICU last year, and I remember thinking of her and actually ultimately reaching out to her and saying, you know, thank you so much for teaching me what it's like to advocate for your child. Um, and I, I've been in medicine for so long, and I had no concept of what that experience is like. Um, and she, she, Lauren Kane's mom was just such a wonderful advocate for her kid. Um, but I really felt like I, I learned from it. That must have been a very interesting, you know, stressful, but interesting switch, right, from doctor to mother of patient. It was a totally, it was not something expected, uh, and, um, and we sort of had, it was, it was a totally different condition, and our son is, is fortunately totally fine, um, but, um, but it was similar in the sense of, you know, we, we had uh, you know, gone into the hospital, they'd sent us home, we'd gone to the pediatrician, they sent us home, and finally we went back, and he ended up getting sort of rushed to the, the uh, operating room in a, in a very short time, um, and um, in retrospect, you know, I'm so glad that I, that I pushed. Uh, because if I hadn't, you know, I don't know what would have happened, and and the way it settled out, uh, he's just fine. 
Um, but I, you know, I, I remember thinking of Lauren's mom and, and talking to her after that about the, the experience. Yeah, that's an interesting exchange, yeah. Uh, so under the heading of rebels, these you know, aberrant proteins, you might uh, call them, uh, what are some other? Uh, I, I'm reading uh, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Yeah, so um, one of the other stories that I talk about in the book uh, is about Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease and a related condition called Kuru, which was this really unusual, uh, dramatic, and deadly condition that emerged in this rural area of Papua New Guinea in the early 19, about 1920 or so, we think it started. And uh, it wasn't really discovered by the wider world until the mid-1950s. This guy, Vincent Vigas, uh, who was a, a European physician who ended up joining the, the Public Health Service in Australia, gets sent, to, gets sent to Papua New Guinea. And he's been working in Papua New Guinea for a few years with no idea that Kuru exists. And he starts to hear that there is this condition that's sort of decimating this local tribe called the Four Tribe. And so he ends up going out into the the tribal areas, and he starts seeing predominantly women and children who essentially they, they lose their language. They start laughing at sort of inappropriate times, and they lose their balance where he'll see them try to stand up, and they, they can't stand. They end up falling down. And within about a year, they, they die from the disease. And Kuru becomes so common that People in the four tribe, actually, the, the men are not able to find wives. Normally, it was the opposite, where men would die in warfare. There was an excess of women in the four tribe. Kuru was so deadly and so common that there were, were the, a, a far excess of, of men. And no one can figure out what's going on. And so Vigas goes back. He writes to people all around the world asking for help. And eventually, he starts uh, collecting brains and looking at them under a microscope. And he sends off the, the microscope samples to a, a place in the U.S. And, and a place in London, among other places. And uh, there's a scientist in the U.S. who says, you know, this disease looks a lot like this other condition called Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Under a microscope, Kuru looks really similar to this other condition that we know about. And uh, the slides also get sent to a museum in London where this veterinarian stops by and he says, oh, you know, Kuru looks a lot like this disease called Scrapey that I see in sheep. And over time, people put it together that all of these conditions are connected. And all of them seem to behave like infectious diseases. So if you look at the epidemiology, it looks like people seem to be catching the diseases. But no one can figure out what's causing the infection. You know, normally, you could think of you know, COVID is caused by a virus. Um, you can think about pneumonia can be caused by a bacteria. But with Kuru and Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease and Scrapey, they all look infectious, but you can't find anything under a microscope. And so it goes on for a long time with people not really understanding what's causing these conditions. And then a scientist at, at UCSF actually performs an experiment and shows that the thing that's causing infections is actually proteins. And these are way, way smaller than, you know, than bacteria and fungi and parasites. Uh, so it, this is something that uh, was really dramatic and totally revolutionized the field of molecular biology, that a protein itself can cause an infection. And people eventually figured out that the proteins have really particular three-dimensional shapes. And there are specific kinds of proteins where when they change shapes, they can adopt this really toxic shape that actually is almost contagious in itself, where it causes all the other proteins around them to adopt a toxic shape, and that really seems to be what causes the disease. There's one author that talks about it as 
if you have a room full of mouse traps and one of the mouse traps goes off, you can imagine it's going to actually cause all of the mouse traps to go off. And that's how it spreads. And when they went back and, and looked at Kuru with the help of um, a, a uh, actually a um, a sociologist named Shirley Lindenbaum, um, they actually figured out that Kuru was transmitted in the brains of people who had died from it. And the four tribe practiced what's called endocannibalism. So they would eat their own members. Uh, so after a person passed away, they had a very protocolized uh, funerary practice. And they would take the brain out and the brain would go to women predominantly. And then uh, if there was leftover brain, it would be brought home for children. And that's why the disease tended to affect women and children. And once cannibalism was outlawed, Kuru has essentially you know, disappeared. Yeah, yeah. so Kuru is uh, essentially extinct right now, but, but important lessons learned from it in the meantime. Yeah, fascinating story. Right. So actually, there were even though this is this rare disease, there's two Nobel Prizes that have been won based on this research because it's actually more widely applicable to other conditions. Uh, well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more with Sarah Manning Peskin, the uh, book, fascinating book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Uh, Sarah Manning Peskin, the author, is with us for the hour. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Sarah Manning Peskin. She's an assistant professor of clinical neurology at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, her new book is called A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. And uh, she says that our brains are the most complex machines known to humankind, but they have an Achilles heel. The very molecules that allow us to exist can also sabotage our minds. Some fascinating stories in here, fascinating science, and uh, talking about scientists as well. Um, I want to move uh, next to the your first section, mutants. Um, and... Uh, Boy, I think this is the story that affected me the most in the in the story. Could you could you, in the book? Could you uh, tell me the story of Amelia Elman again? I think not her real name. Exactly. So um, Amelia uh, is a, a woman who uh, grew up watching her mom sort of uh, deteriorate, and she watched. She saw her mom her mom's movement change. Uh, changed. Uh, her mom stopped sort of understanding situations. She lost her job. And over time, uh, Amelia realized her mom actually had a condition called Huntington's disease. And she, Amelia ended up struggling herself with things like uh, drug addiction, and uh, she ends up uh, becoming homeless for a time. Uh, she ends up going into a, into a shelter and eventually you know, gets a job and actually goes back and, and takes care of her mom as her mom passes away from Huntington's disease. And after a time, uh, Amelia actually started to think about you know, which she actually wanted to get tested to know whether she has the gene that carries, uh, that increases her, her risk or that, that causes Huntington's disease. And uh, so she calls up a, a clinic and talks to them about why she might want to, to know about her, her genetic status. And she ends up going in and learning that she actually carries the genetic change that causes Huntington's disease. And so what I write about in the book is the process of her, you know, her story and, and deciding to get tested and what it's like and how she's reacted to, uh, to knowing that she carries that genetic change, even though right now she's, she's totally asymptomatic. Hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's wonderful for now, right? Uh, that's, uh, that's just so... Uh, you know, it's uh, sort of Damocles over your head kind of a thing, right? 
Uh, you, you've seen, yeah, seen so your mother it, suffer. You know, genetic and... testing is so strange now. We're in this period where genetic testing has gotten so good that we have all these people where we can say, you know, you have this genetic change where if you live long enough, we're, we're pretty sure you're going to get you know, a certain disease, but we don't yet have the technology necessarily to cure it. Um, and so some people find that it, you know, it's useful to know their genetic status for a few reasons. And some people say, you know, I want to know because I want to know what's going to happen in the future so that I can prepare for it. You know, I want to save money. I want to you know, do something else. I want to go on a vacation, something like that. Some people say, I want to know what's going on in my genes because um, I uh, want to do research projects. And, you know, there are lots of research studies where if you have a certain mutation, we actually have these targeted therapies that we think may help and may change the future. And then another reason why people sometimes do it is actually because we have this incredible technology where um, if people carry a genetic mutation that they know about and they want to have children, if they use IVF, they actually can have biological children that don't have the mutation. So it's this amazing technology where we have all these people with known, you know, they know they have a mutation that's eventually going to cause the disease for them, but they can have children that they know will not have the disease. So they can literally root out the disease from their lineage, um, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but we're in this strange place with genetic testing where you have all these people who, you know, who know that they have a mutation, but we can't, we don't have the tools yet to completely stop the disease from happening. This is a, you know, obviously not the only disease, right? We have genetic testing, and then, and then this whole question of do I test or do I not? Exactly. So there's lots of diseases where we, um, where we can do genetic testing. Huntington's, I want to say, is one of the most common reasons why people do IVF with genetic testing. Um, but there's lots of conditions, and, um, and, and typically most of our patients who do this, they go through the process with a, a genetic counselor who talks through, you know, uh, what would you do if you found out you had this mutation? What would you do if you found out you didn't? Um, how would it change you know, what your life? What would you do that day? What would you do the next year? Um, and it's, these are such huge life-changing pieces of information that for us it's really important for people to go through the process with someone who helps support them, whatever the results. There's, there is some data that once people get a genetic result, they tend to sort of adjust to it and start going back to a steady state after about three months. Um, but the process is made so much easier and, and more interpretable with the guide of a, of a genetic counselor. Yeah, you'd, yeah, I could imagine I'd, you'd want some counseling with that, wouldn't you? Um, I, I wonder, uh, there's a, a researcher you, you write about uh, in this field, uh, Nancy Wexler. Yeah, so she's a, a, um, a brilliant researcher. Uh, she's a woman who uh, had, she went to Harvard, she was like a Fulbright, Fulbright scholar, and she was on vacation in Europe, and she gets a call from her dad saying, you know, could you come home for my birthday? And she, she thought it was sort of unusual, but she comes home, and he sits her down along with her sister and says, your, your mom has Huntington's disease. And she actually overhauls her whole life. She ends up, she's been about to start a graduate program in psychology, and she ends up turning her whole career into trying to find a cure for Huntington's disease. And she pretty soon realizes that, you know, we know that if someone has Huntington's disease, there's about a 50-50 chance that their child will turn out to develop the disease or will, will carry the gene. And so she very quickly realizes that if we want to cure Huntington's disease, one of the best things for us to do is to figure out what gene actually causes the, the disease. 
And she comes across a, a population in Venezuela where tons and tons of people have Huntington's disease. It's just extraordinarily common. If you walk down the street, you see people who have these movements. And she ends up doing uh, research with these, these patients. And ultimately, along with lots of other scientists that she sort of recruits and collaborates with, they actually were the, they figured out the, the location of the gene that causes Huntington's disease. And the, the method that they used was novel. And people went on to use that method to find the genes that caused lots of other diseases. So she really ended up revolutionizing not only Huntington's disease, but also really the entire field of, of genetics. And uh, she, at one point, talks about having taken only, you know, a single biology class in her whole, cl- in her whole life. And her sister said, I don't think she even took a single class. <laughs> um, but, but despite having really no formal training, she made this enormous contribution to the field and really changed how we do genetics. And ultimately, um, you know, she, her mom had Huntington's disease, so she was at a 50-50 risk. And uh, she ultimately started developing some abnormal movements. And a few years ago, she came out in the article in the New York Times talking about how she she has the disease. Uh, And she actually, even though the work she did was pivotal in creating the test that we use for Huntington's disease, she actually decided never to get tested. Um, So she found out over time as as her body changed. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, choice. She, She was instrumental in creating the test, but she chose not to. Yeah. Yeah, she talks about it as she, she decided that um, she had so much to lose from taking the test if it turned out that she had the mutation, and she didn't have that much to gain. And so that's why she decided not to do it. Hmm. Interesting intersection of personal with professional as well, the fact that she changed her whole whole profession. Uh, fascinating story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, have you talk about invaders and evaders, and I'll just uh, tease this before the break. Uh, Abraham Lincoln makes an appearance in your in your book. Uh, we'll have <laughs> more with uh, Sarah Manning Peskin, A Molecule Away from Madness is the book following this break. You're listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, clinical neurologist uh, Sarah Manning Peskin. Uh, she has a fascinating book out. It's called A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. And uh, so she uh, uh, divides the book into several sections. Uh, DNA mutants is one, rebellious proteins another. We've talked about some stories uh, from that. Uh, part three is brain invaders and evaders. So let's start, uh, Sarah Manning Peskin, with uh, invaders. These are medicines or toxins that we ingest, right? So, um, so tell me about Abraham Lincoln. Yes, what I wrote about in the book is this this uh, theory that Abraham Lincoln might have suffered from mercury toxicity. And so there's a, um, a world-renowned actually infectious disease doctor who also does some medical history. Um, and he happened to be reading a, a book, a historical nonfiction book about Lincoln, and he read that Lincoln used a medication called Blue Mass. And when, when uh, this guy, Norbert Hirschhorn, who's this researcher, when he looked into it more, he found there's actually a lot of secondhand accounts uh, that Lincoln used blue mass. And most people have no idea what the medication is, um, but Hirschhorn actually had studied it in medical school years ago, and he remembered that the main ingredient in blue mass is actually mercury. And so he actually went on to uh, work with a, a pharmacologist, and they recreated blue mass and they calculated how much mercury exposure it actually caused. And when they figured out the amount, it was much, much, much higher than what's considered the safe amount of mercury 
their sort of daily mercury exposure. And when they looked back, they found an account from one of Lincoln's uh, colleagues who talked about hearing Lincoln say that he used to take blue mass and he stopped taking it right after he was elected president because he thought it made him cross. And when we look at more accounts of mercury toxicity now, there's very good evidence that mercury toxicity really wreaks havoc on people's emotional regulation. And so Hirshhorn comes up with this theory that Lincoln may actually have had mercury toxicity uh, from blue mass pills. And we can never really prove it. Um, mercury, most of it sort of comes out of the body within a year. And the thought is that he, you know, Lincoln stopped using it uh, after he got elected, so long before he actually was assassinated. So we don't have any samples to test. Um, and, you know, even today, it's hard to diagnose mercury toxicity without actually doing a blood test. Um, so we can't prove it, but it's sort of a wild example of of a invader, a small molecule, getting into the brain and um, and potentially changing changing history. Yeah, you write about that. Mercury has had a fascination for you know a lot of people, including medical folks, right? That the, this could cure a lot of things. Was the thought? Yeah, it was actually used as sort of a panacea for a long time. So people thought it cured it cured syphilis. Uh, even for Lincoln's case, it's unclear whether he might have taken it for depression uh, or it also helps with constipation because it actually gives people really uh, horrible upset stomach and, and diarrhea. Um, and even in uh, Lewis and Clark's expedition, they actually took a medication with them called thunderclappers that had, was really high in mercury. And it was prescribed for all sorts of things. But fortunately, actually, one of the ways that, that uh, people have located some of the sites of Lewis and Clark's encampments is actually because they found mercury deposits uh, that were from the latrines uh, from people who've been on the expeditions. Uh, so it actually, it's been sort of uh, fortuitous for us in some ways. Um, but yeah, it was just used for all sorts of things. It makes me, you know, uh, lest we get too proud of our time, so it makes me wonder what people, you know, 100 years from now will look back on us. <laughs> Uh, you know. Right. There's always that joke of, right. you know, half the things that you learn in medical school are wrong, but the problem is we don't know which half, yeah, 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 which right. is probably about accurate. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's turn to evaders. This, this you say, these are proteins, you know, or, you know, molecules. We depend on having them around. We suffer when they're missing. You tell a fascinating story about uh, a person you call Lisa Park. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. So Lisa Park had this um, strange phenomenon where she uh, started getting weak. And people initially thought it was a, a problem with her immune system, but they tried treating that. It didn't seem to help. She got weaker and weaker. And eventually she started actually having a, a really curious change in the way that she was thinking, where she sort of lost her memory. And she started to sort of fill in gaps. Um, so if you asked her something, uh, she might fill in a space where she didn't have a memory. And it wasn't on purpose. She wasn't you know, purposely trying to cover things up. She was, a term that we use sometimes for it is with honest lying, um, where her brain would just sort of automatically fill in spaces where there was a blank in memory. And no one could really figure out what was causing it. Um, and then her husband happened to mention that she had been uh, drinking a fair amount of wine. And when the neurologist heard that, he immediately sent her to get a blood test for a, a vitamin. And uh, he checked her vitamin B1, which is a, called thiamine. And it was quite low. And uh, it turned out, actually, that was what was causing her symptoms was a vitamin deficiency, that when people drink uh, heavily, oftentimes it makes it difficult to absorb thiamine and difficult to, um, difficult to, to use thiamine. And, uh, and that was what was happening with her. And so they you know, admitted her to the hospital, gave her high doses of thiamine, and she, she started to improve. 
Yeah, interesting. So little clues, right? The husband, I think, or someone mentions she's drinking a lot of wine, and, you, and then you're able to connect it up. Um, you go back in uh, in history. Tell us about when you know th- this particular vitamin deficiency was identified uh, among Dutch troops in Java. Exactly. So um, it's sort of a wild story. So um, the researchers who were trying to figure out what was going on, so the disease was was affecting all these troops. It was killing tons of people, and uh, so it was getting a lot of funding because it was it was affecting the military. And so these researchers at the time thought it was caused by a toxin. And they're doing all this, these uh, laboratory experiments. Nothing seems to be working. But lo and behold, around the same time, the chickens that are kept in the lab start suffering from a really similar condition. They start getting weak. They fall over. They sort of lie on their wings. They can't flap their wings. And then they, they die. And the disease starts affecting chickens sort of kind of abruptly. And so these researchers decide, you know, what uh, they decide, you know, maybe they should use the chickens as a, um, as a model for the disease. And they go to start studying the chickens, and suddenly the, the disease goes away, and they start getting better, and without the researchers ever doing anything. So they say, you know, they're a little frustrated because they've now lost their disease model, but they now also realize, you know, what a great piece of information to explore. So they start thinking about whether maybe something has been changed in the food for the animals. And so they go and they find out actually that the, the cook had decided that uh, they would change the, the feed around the time when the disease had started. And so initially they'd been giving these animals brown rice because that was sort of um, less fancy and it was cheaper. And so the chickens had no disease. And around the time, uh, right before the disease started, the, whoever was doing the cooking said, uh, you know, why don't we just give the chickens the leftover white rice from the dining hall? And so they start eating white rice. That's when the chickens start getting diseases. Uh, that's when they start getting weak. And then uh, another cook comes along and says, oh, no, we can't give the chickens this fancy rice. We, you know, that's, they're, not, uh, they're not sort of worthy of it. We're going to go back and give them brown rice. And when the feed changes, suddenly the chickens stop getting weak and they get better. And so the researchers actually were really astute and figured out, oh, my gosh, so actually if we change to brown rice, we can actually cure this disease. And they actually start implementing it pretty quickly and actually are able to, to cure the, the condition. And it turns out that they're, the, the thymine or the, the vitamin is actually very high in the piece of the part of rice that gets taken away when you turn brown rice into white rice. Um, and so uh, it was sort of just this wild story. It just happened to be sort of happenstance that the people who were researching this disease happened to see the connection to these chickens whose feed changed at exactly the right time. Mm. And so that work 150 years before you know, was able to help out the Lisa, right? Exactly. So that was there was a, a long uh, a long lag, and actually, it's actually changed our practice. So now. You know, if someone comes into the hospital um, and they have a history of, of significant alcohol use, we often give them vitamins to try to prevent people from having memory loss related to, to thiamine deficiency. So it very much changes what we do. So this uh, this particular case is fascinating to me. In fact, you, uh, you titled this chapter, An Honest Liar. From Lisa's perspective, she's, she's telling the truth, right? Right, and it, that's exactly so. The um, the guy who sort of discovered this disease, um, whose name is Korsakoff, he talks about um, seeing a patient where uh, he asked the patient, you know, what did you do yesterday? And Korsakoff knows that the patient's been lying in bed for weeks, uh, but the patient creates this elaborate story about having gone on this you know adventure and this huge trip the day before. 
Um, and it's not it's not on purpose. It's really just, you know, we think of our memories as being this place to store old information. But in this condition, our memory essentially becomes a place where we create new information and we create new memories that never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about another fascinating figure in the book, This in, in this case, a doctor, uh, essentially a scientist, and you, you write about many of those in, in the book, uh, some of whom are not believed at the time, right, to have to push back against the establishment. Um, this is an irrepressible figure, uh, Joseph Goldberger. Yeah, so Goldberg is sort of a wild guy. He, um, so he, he's part of the story of pellagra. And pellagra was this disease that causes, uh, it causes dementia, it causes a really gruesome rash, and it causes a terrible upset stomach. And it had been sort of existing in, in Europe for a while, but in the early 1900s, um, most people at the time thought it, that the U.S. was sort of immune to it. And cases start cropping up primarily in the southeastern U.S. and in, in North Carolina, um, but in other places as well in the southeastern U.S. And the disease starts getting more and more and more common to the point where tens of thousands of people and then hundreds of thousands of people are contracting the, are contracting pellagra, and many, many of them are dying from it. And it tends to affect impoverished people. And uh, it gets more and more, more and more common, and people start getting scared. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna decimate the United States. And the predominant idea at the time was that pellagra was caused by a infection that was transmitted by flies, and that was sort of easy for people to believe or to stomach because the disease tended to affect people who were impoverished, and so they could say, you know, look, it's their own fault. It's their own poor sanitation that's causing the disease. But the, the science doesn't really bear out, and uh, the disease gets worse and worse and worse. And the Surgeon General eventually calls on Joseph Goldberger to say, you know, can you, can you cure pellagra? Can you figure out what's causing us? Can you tell us how to fix it? And Goldberger uh, was sort of a wild guy. He'd been you know, born at the foot of the Carpathian Mountains. He came to the U.S. at age nine, speaking no English, works his way up, goes to medical school. He'd become a public health officer. He'd contracted uh, typhus and typhoid and yellow fever as part of his researchers. So he really was in the trenches, and he decides to take on this. You know, he agrees to take on this, this problem of pellagra. And very quickly after he started reading about it, he realizes that pellagra is probably not caused by an infection. It's actually caused by a deficiency in the, in the diet. And he gets so much pushback because that idea was so much more problematic for people to believe, that it's not that impoverished people are bringing the disease on themselves. It's actually that we're essentially starving our own, the country is starving its own people. Um, and so people are, you know, terribly angry. He gets totally ridiculed. And ultimately, he decides he's going to sort of take things into his own hands. Um, and he, he, I guess it's in more gruesome language in the book, but he basically tries to expose himself and a few volunteers to pellagra um, and expose himself to, you know, uh, uh, scrapings from the rashes and blood and stool and urine. And um, he and the other volunteers ultimately, uh, after six months or so, uh, Goldberger comes up with this sentence where he says, you know, considering the amount of filth that we took in, it's pretty impressive that all we got was some diarrhea. Um, and uh, none of them really get pellagra. And he says, you know, I've now I've proven to you that pellagra is not an infectious disease. And he eventually goes on to figure out that pellagra is caused by a deficiency in a B vitamin. And he dies just before they can figure out exactly which B vitamin uh, is causing the disease. 
Uh, and he actually was nominated for a Nobel Prize four times, never won it. Um, and, you know, eventually before he passed away, people were convinced that he was really the, the leader on it. But he had spent so many years really fighting the, the, the dominant theory. Yeah, just uh, just amazing. An example of how, uh, you know, I guess a person's character, his, his indomitable will uh, helped to help to move him forward. W- one of the things is parenthetically, uh, he he roped his wife into this, right? These what you call filth parties. <laughs> yeah, there's this great he and his wife had sort of an interesting relationship because he was off traveling so much. So she was really stuck raising the children by herself. Um and, so, and they used to write letters back and forth, and they they drifted apart for a long time. But there's this really funny intimacy when he talks about uh, his basically his wife participating. His, his wife was so confident in him that she insisted on participating in this research. Uh, but he limited things where he he wouldn't expose her to the you know the stool or the urine, and all he would agree to do is to take a sample from a, a female patient with pellagra, a sample of blood, and injected it into his his wife. Um, so he lets her participate in this sort of small, uh, small but quite risky way. Um, and it's sort of this moment of this sort of awkward scientific intimacy in a relationship that was otherwise sort of fraught. <laughs> yeah, the, the personal touch. <laughs> um, so uh, we just have about a minute left. Uh, I want to end on the, on the hopeful note that, that you, uh, you know, you, you end the book on. Uh, you say the way we explore cognitive afflictions has begun to change. Uh, just tell us very briefly uh, what, what gives you hope. Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest way to to see where we've been is in Alzheimer's disease, which is the holy grail of all of this. Um, for so many years since the disease was discovered, we couldn't tell someone if they had Alzheimer's disease until they died and we looked at their brain. So it was this horrible thing where we would say, you know, we think this is what's causing a problem. We think this is what's you know, slowly uh, degrading your brain, but I can't tell you until you die from it. And now we've made this huge leap where in people who are living, we can actually tell whether they have amyloid and tau, which are the proteins that define Alzheimer's disease. And that's really revolutionized how we do research studies on Alzheimer's disease. And it's allowed us to take a molecular look at these conditions that before this were really a lot more vague. And and that's been just a a huge leap forward. And we have things like that for other conditions, but for Alzheimer's disease, that's been a dramatic change in terms of how we how we do these studies. So we're able to track changes in ways or to sort of assess whether a drug works in a way that we, we never really used to be able to do. Um, and so I, I ended the book on a hopeful note because I, I feel hopeful. I, I think we've just made these extraordinary advances recently. Um, and, uh, and I do feel hopeful that we're going to get to the place we need to get to. Well, the book is fascinating. It's called A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Sarah Manning Peskin is the author, and uh, she's joined us. Uh, the book is out and available now. You can find her at her website, sarahmanningpeskin.com. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, we have our member drive coming up next week, some great guests coming up then. And on Thursdays, we end with Leo T. and Skywatcher. That's what we'll do again today. Thanks for listening. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here. As we climb into the sky with our own eyes, we can see the waning gibbous moon. That's between full and half, when Luna is in the phase where its visible surface is shrinking every night until it's a new moon and hiding. Then growing back to full. At any rate, the moon or Luna shines in the east after dark. And binoculars will help you look to its upper left and find the sublime Pleiades, or seven sisters, which right now looks like a twinkly kite flying with its tail trailing below. 
See the sky chart on the Skywatcher side for all of this program as well as some great photographs. Also easy to spot is bright big orange Capella. It's a few clicks to the left of the moon. And then on Saturday the moon shines magically near a big beautiful reddish star in Taurus the Bull blinking at you known as Aldebaran the Eye of the Bull. And by midnight Orion the King of Kites is clearing the eastern horizon. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. As we talk about the moon, we delve into some of the interesting images people all over the world have of the mares or seas of the moon. In many cultures, including the Chinese zodiac, the rabbit is a lunar creature with feminine energies and whose outline can be seen in the face of the full moon. Many Native American cultures, the rabbit myths tell of the hare returning the sun to the sky and restoring warmth, which I think we can all use a little bit of warmth along with the nice moisture we've been getting. On the Skywatcher side, the rabbit in a painting by Susan Saden Boulay and published by Pomegranate Communication shows a moon goddess venerated by the Ergic peoples of western Siberia. Although this goddess can assume many forms, the rabbit's her favorite. And let's take the little Skywatcher spaceship out a little further to visit the JPL NASA Mars rover called Perseverance. It is getting ready for a little trip, a little fresh round of exploration on the Jezero Crater region after helping confirm the ancient giant lake and riverbed in the Isidius Plantia just north of the equator in the eastern hemisphere of Mars. Check out the Skywatcher site for a cool map. As promised, we continue with our 3 billion mile voyage to Pluto on New Horizons, the first Earth probe that we know of anyway, except that maybe by the Aztecs or, or somebody, to explore Pluto. New Horizons not only checked out Pluto, but its moons. That's right, five moons. The biggest, Chiron, is in a tight dance orbiting with Pluto and has a few surprises of its own. Spanning half the moon is an enormous canyon, Argo Chasma, that is almost twice as long as the Grand Canyon and has possibly the highest cliffs in the solar system. Pluto. Well, we'll check the young, surprising geology next time and at some point uh, get New Horizons out another billion miles or so to a weird, knocked-out space rock. We've been heading there for a couple of weeks, but we will get there. It's many cultures, one sky, as we look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T.